The freedom to believe is absolute. People are free to hold whatever beliefs they may have. But when they're acting in the public sphere in ways that affect other people, well, that conduct is not absolutely free. It never has been and it can't be. To the extent that religion is being used now as a justification, sometimes it's being used in good faith, sometimes it's being used cynically, but it is being advanced as a reason to permit discrimination. We need to call that out. That has been inappropriate in the past, and it is still inappropriate. It doesn't matter what group of people is being targeted with that argument, it's inappropriate. And that's true as a legal matter. It also should be true as a social and cultural matter. This is Outcasting, Public Radio's LGBTQ youth program where you don't have to be queer to be here. Outcasting is produced in New York by Media for the Public Good, online at outcastingmedia.org. Hi, I'm Isha. This is the 24th and final part of our in-depth exploration about how claims of religious liberty are being weaponized to justify discrimination against LGBTQ people. Our guest is a civil rights lawyer, Jennifer C. Pizer. Jenny is a senior counsel and director of Law and Policy for Lambda Legal, the country's oldest and largest legal organization seeking full recognition of the civil rights of LGBT people and everyone living with HIV. If you've missed any of the series, you can listen on our website, outcastingmedia.org. Through much of the long conversation we've been having in this series, we've been talking about the constitutional freedom of religion and how it's being used to attack the competing constitutional right of LGBTQ people to be treated equally under the law. The constitutional freedom of religion is based in two clauses of the First Amendment. The words are very simple. Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. At the most basic level, the Establishment Clause is supposed to keep the government from establishing a state-endorsed religion, and the Free Exercise Clause is supposed to keep the government from interfering with the rights of people to practice their religion without undue interference. Obviously, there are limits. Just as the freedom of speech is limited, you can't shout fire in a crowded theater. But those are the general concepts. Before our eyes, the Supreme Court is dismantling the wall of separation between church and state, which is supposed to be one of the founding principles of the United States. Until just over a month ago, government funding for education could be allocated to religious schools, but only for non-religious purposes, paying for lunch programs and desks and that kind of thing, but not for religious instruction. But in June 2022, the court ruled in an important case, Carson v. Macon, that the state of Maine can be required to fund religious instruction at private schools. The religious schools in this case discriminate against LGBTQ people, so under this new Supreme Court ruling, states can be forced to spend taxpayer money to support religious instruction and activities at religious schools that openly discriminate on a religious basis. We've also talked in this series about the increasingly aggressive use of the Free Exercise Clause. Traditionally, as Jenny mentioned earlier in this series, the Free Exercise Clause was used as a shield, not a sword. It was a legal argument to protect religious practices from government interference when those practices didn't harm other people. But more recently, it's being used as a weapon. We saw it in the 2014 Hobby Lobby case, in which the court supported a company's claim that forcing it to provide birth control services as a part of its employee health insurance coverage would violate its free exercise rights. Another free exercise case we talked about in the summer of 2021 was Fulton v. City of Philadelphia. 
This case involved a Catholic adoption agency that wanted a lucrative contract from the city to screen potential adoptive and foster parents. The problem was that this agency also wanted to exempt itself from the city's contract provision that barred discrimination against LGBTQ people. And although the Supreme Court didn't make a sweeping ruling in that case, as it has in more recent cases, it did rule in favor of the agency and allowed it to continue to discriminate. So this lawsuit was another aggressive use of a religious entity's claim of free exercise rights to harm LGBTQ people. During this series, we've also talked about a Texas policy that seeks to classify parents of trans kids as child abusers if they provide trans-appropriate medical care to their kids. And just a few weeks ago, on July 1, 2022, the Florida law that opponents are calling the Don't Say Gay law went into effect. This new law censors the ability of educators to mention LGBTQ topics in schools. It's officially called the Parental Rights in Education Law, and one of the things Jenny said last time is that it shouldn't be a proper role of parents to try and censor what's taught in public schools. By some counts, hundreds of laws like these have been proposed or enacted by a number of states just in recent months. These policies target and marginalize LGBTQ kids in the name of protecting them, and that presumably means protecting them from any kind of information that could make them become LGBTQ. Of course, kids are who they are. Just as straight people can't be influenced into becoming LGBTQ, LGBTQ people can't be influenced into becoming straight. So the actual effect of these policies is to make LGBTQ kids miserable and increase their risk for self-harm. It's hard to ignore the thinly veiled religious motivations behind these policies. In some important cases, including marriage equality in 2013 and 2015, and the decriminalization of same-sex intimacy in 2003, the courts have stood up for our equality. And litigating in the courts to protect what we've perceived as constitutional rights has been an important part of the path toward greater equality. But that was then. The membership of the court has changed, and as we saw with the overturning of Roe v. Wade, rights that we thought were constitutionally protected, may be taken away by the new religious conservative majority on the court. Supreme Court Justices Thomas and Alito have already taken aim at marriage equality, and Thomas wants the court to reconsider Lawrence v. Texas, the case in which the court ruled that it was unconstitutional for states to criminalize same-sex intimacy. So, Jenny, thanks for joining us again on Outcasting. Isha, it's great to be with you again. As the court dismantles the separation of church and state, we may be losing our ability to turn to the legal system to keep some people's religious beliefs from being imposed on everyone. How could this reality affect the continuing fight for LGBTQ equality? Well, I think if the Supreme Court, in cases that it has now and cases that may come, rules that institutions and people for religious reasons can ignore non-discrimination rules, then we will have a lot more discrimination against LGBTQ people. Certainly, as we look at some of the decisions that have come from the Supreme Court, say in the last decade or so, the seeds have been planted for creating religious exceptions or religious exemptions to non-discrimination laws and to other laws as well. I think the consequences may be particularly severe for LGBTQ people and also for women possibly also for religious minorities, and possibly for other things, such as public safety. There have been religious freedom arguments that the Supreme Court was, in my view, surprisingly receptive to that allowed 
religious organizations to ignore public health rules during this ongoing COVID-19 pandemic. So I think sometimes the stakes are particularly high for LGBTQ people, but it's not just about LGBTQ people. It really is about whether we're going to have a society of laws that apply equally to everyone that are not about religion, that are about the common welfare. That's the type of society that our constitution promises to us, but that promise is not going to be fulfilled unless we really push to make it so. Let's talk about the American public and their attitudes toward LGBTQ equality. Do people who oppose equality for LGBTQ people make up the majority of Americans? Well, public opinion research going back many years has confirmed that majorities and and actually strong majorities support workplace equality for LGBTQ people. And it does depend what issue you look at and how you do the polling. But I think it's fair to say that we have a majority, in fact, a strong majority, on some of the issues that we've had to work hard to secure, including the freedom to marry. What makes it a little trickier is that with that baseline support for non-discrimination and inclusion, the numbers can shift when there's a particular issue that people don't yet understand. And that's why I have confidence that if we continue to do our work of educating and engaging people and coming out, we will continue to make progress, even though sometimes when people start out misunderstanding an issue, we don't always have those numbers. And we don't, we don't presently have public support on all the issues that matter. And that is why we continue to have considerable work ahead. Are rights that we currently think of as settled in jeopardy? I'm thinking of things like marriage equality. Well, there certainly are people in positions of power, including some members of the current Supreme Court, who have made it explicit that they think the Supreme Court should revisit issues such as marriage equality and some other constitutional rights. I think we need to take that seriously, but the fact that a couple of members of the Supreme Court or leaders of some political parties may say that does not mean that that is what is going to happen. Marriage equality currently enjoys, by public opinion polling and research, a supermajority support. I think part of the reason for that is that there were many false things said that how society would be threatened if same-sex couples had the ability to enter into civil marriage. Those things were not true, and they have not come to pass. So I think lots of people have come to recognize that the fear-mongering that was done uh, before that victory was just fear-mongering, and there's no reason to worry. So I'm not staying up late nights worrying that my marriage is going to be dissolved anytime soon. But I do think the threats are real. The reality is that some issues have been used as political tools, and if the people that are being targeted are unable to organize and push back effectively, then that tool works for the people using that tool. And there certainly are organizations working hard to bring legal cases and to pass legislation to restrict the rights of LGBTQ people and to give government permission to discriminate against us and to give people in the private sector permission to discriminate against us, including organizations that seek and receive government funding to run programs that are supposed to be about taking care of members of the general public in an equal non-discriminatory way. So these are struggles that are ongoing today. They are real, they are challenging. This is part of why it's been a privilege 
as well as a pleasure to have these conversations with you over this time, because I think the American people, for many generations, we've been encouraged and taught to respect freedom of religion and to not argue with people who express that they have a particular view because it's a religious view. And what I want to just emphasize over and over is that the freedom to believe is absolute. People are free to hold whatever beliefs they may have. But when they're acting in the public sphere in ways that affect other people, well, that conduct is not absolutely free. It never has been and it can't be. And when we're talking about public policy, we're talking about the rules that affect everyone, that everybody should have the same rights equal freedom, that freedom should be real, but it always has been in the context of rules that protect the public welfare. To the extent that religion is being used now as a justification, sometimes it's being used in good faith, sometimes it's being used cynically, but it is being advanced as a reason to permit discrimination. We need to call that out. That has been inappropriate in the past, and it is still inappropriate. It doesn't matter what group of people is being targeted with that argument, it's inappropriate. And that's true as a legal matter. It also should be true as a social and cultural matter. That's the bottom line. So I think if we don't do the work, we could see our rights very seriously eroded through those exceptions. This is Outcasting, Public Radio's LGBTQ youth program, Produced in New York by Media for the Public Good. Online at outcastingmedia.org. We're talking about what happens when people claim that their religious liberty entitles them to discriminate against LGBTQ people in ways that wouldn't be acceptable if the discrimination were against other minorities. Our guest is Jenny Pizer, the Senior Counsel and Director of Law and Policy for Lambda Legal, the country's oldest and largest legal organization seeking full recognition of the civil rights of LGBT people and everyone living with HIV. As a group, LGBTQ people are a relatively smaller minority. How can we enlist allies? I think the history of our movement shows us, first of all, we are everywhere. We are in every community. We are in families. People know us. Sometimes they don't always know who we are. Sometimes we haven't shared our full truth with them. But when we come out and people realize that they know us, that they like us, sometimes they love us, they do become allies. And sometimes we have to ask them to help. I think we can't expect people to always know what we need or how they should participate or even that they would be welcome and that we really need to count on them. So we can do that. We can invite people. We have done that. We did it in many ways quite effectively in the steady campaign to win the freedom to marry. We can do it now, I think, in the work we need to do to protect trans and non-binary folks. The trans and non-binary community is really quite small and really depends on everybody recognizing the targeting and the discrimination. How can we fight most effectively against opposition to our equality? I think the recipe for this work is not that different from the work that has been done in every movement of a minority group to insist on equal treatment under law. Sometimes that's about organizing. Sometimes it is strategic impact litigation. Sometimes it's public education. Sometimes it's entertainment. These struggles are not just one and done. They're ongoing because some groups that have political power or economic or social power want to hold on to it, and other groups 
get taken advantage of or excluded. I think among the most important parts of the mindset is that we can all be that much more effective when we are doing this work together, when we recognize the way exclusion and discrimination affects those who are most vulnerable, and that that vulnerability can happen across multiple different groups of people. When we stand together, when we organize and speak together, we're going to be that much more effective at insisting that the rules treat everybody in a fair way. How can young people get involved in this fight for LGBTQ equality? Well, I think young people have wonderful opportunities, big responsibility, Just one thing I'll mention, in addition to all the different things we've been talking about uh, so far, is to register and to vote. And I'll call out an organization, a wonderful organization that's relatively new called the Civics Center that is all about young people in high school engaging each other to register to vote and then to vote. The right to vote is an incredibly powerful tool. So many elections have turned by just a tiny number of votes. Young people look at the future and have so many issues to be concerned about, well, there are things you can do about it. And registering to vote and voting is among the the first step important things to do. We've just about reached the end of this long series. And the key topic that has run through it is constitutional law, which can seem complicated and maybe even remote to a lot of people. Can you talk to us about why it's important for all of us to understand something about it? You know, I think the bottom line is that sometimes people think that constitutional law or law in general or structure of government, it's not that important, it doesn't touch their lives, or maybe it's too complicated, or maybe they never had a class in school that really made it interesting. I think we all have such a stake in maintaining a functioning democracy. And there is reason to be concerned these days that some folks are organizing in ways to try to to call the results of the election based on their own power rather than counting the votes in a fair and accurate way. So the bottom line is that there's really few things more important than maintaining our functioning constitutional democracy. And so this opportunity to talk about all these issues is is wonderful. I hope everybody who who is listening to to our conversations feels inspired to engage in the political process, to educate themselves about the Constitution and the law, and about how our government operates, and then participate. You have the freedom to participate, and you have the responsibility to participate. And many of us are depending on you to do it. Some of us have been doing this for a long time. We are depending on all of you to get involved and to keep our functioning democracy alive. We could lose it if you don't do that. So, Isha, thank you so much for all these conversations that we've been having. Uh, It gives me a lot of hope for the next generation. What a great note to close on. That brings our marathon of conversations with you about this important issue to an end. Hallelujah. This has been such a great experience. I've enjoyed every one of the interviews, and I just learned so much from them. So I just want to thank you for being so generous with your time and all of your talent. Isha, it's really been my pleasure. Thank you so much for putting all this time and effort into focusing on what's a very, very important subject. It's really been a pleasure. Thanks. When I first joined Outcasting in November 2020, I got pretty lucky because within my first month, our producer, Mark, asked if anyone was interested in becoming part of the Religious Liberty team. I had no idea what being on the Religious Liberty team entailed, but I immediately said yes, eager to get more involved in outcasting. 
I quickly learned that during the previous months, Lucas, an outcasting alum, had been interviewing Jenny Pizer for the series about how religious liberty is being abused to justify discrimination against LGBTQ people. But Lucas had graduated from high school, so his time in outcasting had come to an end, and I soon learned that one of my roles was to become his successor as the new interviewer. I began preparing for my first interview with Jenny by listening to Lucas's interviews with her. Through these programs, I started to learn about the deeply rooted tension between religion and being LGBTQ, and how that tension is now playing out in the United States. This tension, which denies equality to LGBTQ people in order to avoid offending the religious beliefs of other people, contrasted with what many of us learned as impressionable middle schoolers. The idea that the U.S. is supposed to be a beacon of democracy or the land of the free or some other slogan promoting the idea of American exceptionalism. In history class, we learned that the U.S. was always the hero, saving other countries from what was supposedly their demise. I didn't question what we were learning at all. I mean, why would I? From what I knew, school was a reliable source. We also learned in school that the U.S. was founded on several core principles, including diversity, individualism, and equality. When the Declaration of Independence was being written, the Founding Fathers, old, wealthy white men, had no qualms writing that all men are created equal, that they're endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. But how could what they were claiming really be true? How could they really believe in all men being treated as equal when so much of American society was based on slavery? I began to wonder, is the U.S. really as exceptional as we make it out to be? In the mainstream media, I heard about the injustices experienced by women, African Americans, Native Americans, and immigrants. But LGBTQ people were often left out of these discussions. I knew that we had secured marriage equality in 2013 and 2015. Some people think that that was the icing on the cake, that marriage equality was the last step in securing full equality. But to put it simply, no. At the federal level, LGBTQ people still have less equality than other minorities, less protection from discrimination, less legal status. And we're protected at the state level in only about half the states. To make matters worse, we're also seeing a trend in which the Supreme Court is allowing assertions of religious freedom to justify discrimination against us. As our guest Jenny Pizer has described in this long outcasting series, religious liberty was initially seen as a shield to protect private religious practices from government intervention. In many instances, this shield was used to protect the practices of minority religions. But now, claims of religious liberty are increasingly being used as a sword to aggressively impose specifically Christian beliefs on people who don't share those beliefs. This is tearing down the wall of separation between church and state. During this series, we've been following a number of Supreme Court cases showing this increasing deference to religious liberty. In the Hobby Lobby case in 2014, the Supreme Court allowed the owners of a chain of stores to claim a religious exemption from a requirement that they include birth control coverage in their employee health insurance plans. In Fulton v. City of Philadelphia in 2021, the court allowed a Catholic adoption agency to discriminate against same-sex couples based on the agency's religious objection to homosexuality. Just weeks ago, in June 2020, in Carson v. Macon, the Supreme Court ruled that the state of Maine could be required to fund religious schools, even when those schools discriminate against LGBTQ students and staff. This requires all taxpayers in the state to financially support, and thus endorse, discriminatory religious beliefs. 
In another case in June 2022, the Supreme Court said it was permissible for a football coach at a public high school to lead prayers on the sidelines with players on his team. The dissenting justices wrote that the conservative religious justices in the majority were ignoring the coercive effects on students who didn't want to participate in those religious practices. And of course, there was the abortion case, the reversal of Roe v. Wade written by Justice Samuel Alito. The ruling wasn't explicitly based on religious grounds, but it's hard to ignore the reality that this court, whose majority holds strong religious views against abortion, has now imposed its religious views on the whole country. In a concurring opinion, Justice Clarence Thomas advocated the reversal of other important court precedents. Specifically, he wants the court to eliminate the right, even of married couples, to use contraception. He wants the court to allow states to recriminalize same-sex intimacy, and he wants the court to eliminate the constitutional protection for marriage equality. Justices Thomas and Alito also attacked marriage equality in the fall of 2020 specifically citing the supposed harms caused to people who oppose marriage equality based on their religious beliefs. We talked about it on an edition of Outcasting Overtime, which you can listen to on our website, outcastingmedia.org. In all of these cases, it's apparently not enough for religious people to live and let live. This line of cases is about permitting religious people to impose their views on everyone through government action, even when that harms other people who don't share those religious views. So where does it end? If a woman brings her dying wife to the emergency room, can a doctor turn them away just because saving a lesbian's life would infringe on his religious belief that homosexuality is a sin? I sure hope not, and framing it this way, I think most Americans would agree with me. In recent years, we've seen headlines about bakers and florists who refuse to provide their services for weddings of same-sex couples. But the issue is not about wedding cakes and flowers, or even doctors. It's about where our society should draw the line between the religious beliefs of some people and how those beliefs can harm other people. And right now, this line is being undrawn, erased even. And with the way things are going, I'm not confident that the line will ever be drawn again. As a young queer woman, it's hard for me to comprehend how and why religion is increasingly being used to control my body and my life. That too in a country founded in significant part on the freedom of religious belief. My own right to self-determination is being hemmed in by other people's religious beliefs. Working on this outcasting series has led me to think back to a lot of what I learned in middle school. I understand that like everything else, the U.S. is imperfect and has never really lived up to the ideals we like to think about ourselves. Things like equality under the law and liberty and justice for all. But for much of my life, I felt we were going in the right direction. I know that progress is not always linear. And so I don't expect it to be when we are talking about the fight for LGBTQ liberation. But today, we have taken a complete 180. Religious rights are now being used aggressively to harm LGBTQ people. And the way I see it, to violate key concepts like the constitutional requirement of separation between church and state, which is being eliminated before our very eyes. So it's becoming harder and harder to think of the United States in the heroic terms we're taught in school. As equality and other essential rights get taken away, explicitly or implicitly in the name of religion, are we on a path toward becoming the kind of theocracy the Founding Fathers so powerfully wanted to avoid? That's it for this final part in our series on the conflict between equality for LGBTQ people and those who cite religious liberty to justify discriminating against us. If you've missed any part of this series, it's available on our website. 
outcastingmedia.org. This program has been produced by the Outcasting team, including youth broadcaster Tim and me, Isha. Our executive producer is Mark Sofis. Outcasting is produced in New York by Media for the Public Good. More information is available at outcastingmedia.org. You can also find us wherever you get your podcasts. Just search for Outcasting. And connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube at Outcasting Media. If you're having trouble, whether it's at home or school, or just with yourself, call the Trevor Project hotline at 866-488-7386, or visit them online at thetrevorproject.org. The Trevor Project is a nonprofit organization dedicated to LGBTQ youth suicide prevention. Call them if you have a problem. Seriously, don't be scared. They even have an online chat you can use if you don't want to talk on the phone. Being different isn't a reason to hate or hurt yourself. All right, I'll say it one more time. 866-488-7386 or online at thetrevorproject.org. You can also find a link on our site, outcastingmedia.org, under Connect. Thanks, and thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this edition of Outcasting, please make your tax-deductible contribution today. We can't do programs like this without your support. To make your donation, please visit us at outcastingmedia.org and click on Support. And connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube at Outcasting Media. Thanks.